and then um, it's been a long time. And um, I also teach in Flourish, which is the women's study. So uh, there were a lot of Wednesday nights when I was over there, but you will see me again in this session. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, I do want to start tonight um, just by, and let me, I meant to say when I started all that, my name is Christine McDermott. So if you were not here the last time I taught, or if you and I have never met, I'd love for you to come up and talk to me for a second. Um, I want to start tonight by asking you a question. Um, and the question is this, when you're flying, when you're getting ready to take off in an aircraft or land, what are the weather conditions that you prefer? Sunny, calm, no rain, no wind. We have a pilot in the room. Tom, what's your preference when you take off? 10, okay, well, the pilot wants a 10 knot headwind. So how do you feel about flying in the direction you're flying? Okay. So um, how do you feel about flying at night? A little scarier? You like the darkness when you look out the window or not your favorite? Sometimes, yeah, can be calming. Take a nap. Well, here's what I want us to think about tonight as we start. I'm with the rest of you. I am a blue sky and white puffy clouds girl when it comes to flying. And um, I've done a lot of flying and traveling, and I've done a lot of flying at night. And so I'm, uh, I'm kind of medium on when I'm leaving a city or flying into a city, I always feel a little bit better when the lights of the city are below me because I know, you know, there's civilization down there and I can tell that we're near something that we need to be near. Then we get up in the sky, and it's dark for the better part of the journey. And then when we get close to where we need to land, once again, I welcome this site right here. But what I really like is when the pilot has to turn slightly or navigate somehow so that I see this. Because what does that tell us? That tells us there's a pathway in front of us. It's exactly where we want to go. And I figure if I can get a glimpse out of that, of that, out of the side of the plane, then I know the pilot is looking right at it and that it's going to guide him straight in to where we need to be. And these lights are brighter. Some of them are clear. They illuminate the runway. They illuminate what we need to land safely. And I want you to think for just a minute as we get back into this Old Testament study and as we're starting tonight to consider the kingdom that God is establishing. He is giving the Israelites the king that they desire. I want you to think for just a minute and to have this visual in your minds as to how the scriptures that we're studying right now and this whole redemptive history is giving us this right here. It is the lighted runway. It is the lighted pathway for us to see ahead of us that God's plan is at work, that it has always been at work from creation, from the time that we started studying the Old Testament back in September. 
but what this will do, especially as we start talking about the kings and as you get more into the rest of the Old Testament, you will see, and I hope you will remember, you're just kind of sliding in. You're gliding in to the final steps of what God did in his redemptive story to lead us to the moment when he sent Jesus Christ, his son, into the world. So, just to get you started tonight, um, for our first table discussion, take a moment and just share with each other, as you prepared for this week, you kind of got back into your reading, you got back into your books, what was your takeaway from this week's lesson? What Did something stand out in your mind that you think, here's what I'm remembering from what I read? either in the book or in the scriptures. And just share that with each other for about five or six minutes. Okay, so let's come back together. When you last met in November, who remembers where you were in the progression of this study? That was a, that was a while ago. That was almost two months ago. They'd cross the Jordan. They'd come to the promised land. That's correct. Anybody want to add anything? Okay. And what occurred um, after Joshua led the people into the promised land was that they started through this cycle of faithfulness, sin, repentance, God restores, and then the cycle begins all over again. And if you'll recall, that was the time period when God gave the judges to the people to oversee them and to help lead them back every time that they got back into that fickle place of no longer believing in God as their king and their Lord and idol worship. So we had a really great series with Chris on Sunday mornings, if you'll remember, about a year ago on the judges. And he, a lot of you can probably remember, he gave us a really good picture of the highs and the lows that were going on during that period in Israel's history. And the time of the judges really showed us two things. And we're going to continue to see this cycle as we continue through the kings in Israel, and the kingdom dividing. And that is this constant cycle of belief, sin and idol worship, consequences, repentance. God's grace enters the picture. He restores them once again, and the cycle just keeps going and going, around and around like this. But I want to remind you of one thing that occurred during the time of the judges that was referenced um, in the chapter that you read before you finished in November, and that was a story that took place in the little book of Ruth, which is wedged right between Judges and 1 Samuel in the Old Testament. And what that book is about is it is the time of the Judges, and there's a little Jewish family. The, um, the male in that family is a man by the name of Elimelech, and he leads his family away from Bethlehem because they don't have enough food. And he takes them to a foreign pagan nation. And things don't go very well there. He dies, both of his sons die. And so now his wife is a widow, 
and she has one daughter-in-law who travels back with her to Bethlehem. And these two are in utter poverty. They are totally destitute. And into their lives comes a man by the name of Boaz. And Boaz fulfills something that was in the law for the Hebrews and the Israelites at this time. He was the kinsman redeemer for Ruth and Naomi, which meant that he was the family member who could make a decision to buy the land that they still owned, marry the daughter-in-law, and then take care of both the mother and the daughter-in-law for the rest of their lives. Now, I'm taking you back to this story for a minute because there's something really important that happens with Ruth and Boaz. Boaz fulfills this role, and in so doing, he is in fact a picture of our kinsman redeemer, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, the only one who can step in for us and rescue and deliver us. But God does something very special through Ruth and Boaz. After they marry and she becomes pregnant, they give birth to a son. And at the end of the book of Ruth, it says this, that they named that son Obed, and Obed became the father of Jesse and the grandfather of David. And the reason I take you back to this little point in time is to show you that in the midst of all that time with the judges, all that turmoil, God was preserving, in this case, this little Jewish family in poverty and destitution to be rescued by a farmer living outside of Bethlehem who was an honorable, God-fearing man who would be their kinsman redeemer. And as their kinsman redeemer, he would rescue them from their poverty, but he would also be the grandfather of, of, he would be the father of Obed, the grandfather of Jesse, and the great-grandfather of David. And the very last verses in the book of Ruth, 18 through 21, record in a little more detail the genealogical record of that occurring. And that genealogical record right there starts with Perez. And the reason that it starts with Perez and that you were pointed there in November is that Perez was a son of Judah. And what is one of the promises that God made about how the messianic line would be formed? Which of Jacob's son would it come through? Judah, exactly. So with that in mind, never forget as you're studying the scripture that although genealogies are boring and we like to skip over them, sometimes they contain some really important information that solidifies for us the picture of what exactly what God was doing in people's lives to create the lines that would lead in this case to Jesse and then David and on to the Lord Jesus Christ. So what happens now is Israel wants a king. And so they begin to say over and over again that they want a king. And here's our bottom line for tonight. As we talk through 
Saul and David and a lot of information about David, here is the thing that I want you to remember. Israel always had a king. They didn't always like it because this king required things of them that they didn't want to have to do. Their king was a holy God who created them, who set them apart, who made them a nation to be a light to all the other nations. But what that meant for them was that although he was rescuing them time and time again, showing them grace over and over again, they didn't want to be unique. They didn't want to be set apart. They didn't want to have to be holy the way that God intended. So instead, their very human desires turned them toward what they saw all the other nations doing, which was having an earthly king who was a mighty warrior who would march into battle, who gained all kinds of wealth and comforts. And most of those kings were oppressive. And in fact, they would take away from the Israelites the very things that they were looking for, security and um, an insurance that their nation would stay together. But they don't see that at this moment in time. They do not remember that they don't need a human king because they have always had the king of kings over them. Similarly, we have a king in our lives, and he is the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's our bottom line for tonight. So what does God do in the midst of all of this? He grants their desire. He says, okay, you want a king? I'm going to give you a king. And he brings a man into the picture who will be his instrument. He is a prophet and a judge. During the time of the judges, remember, Samuel is functioning in both of those roles. And Samuel is the one to whom God says to do a couple of things. First of all, as a very young boy, God tells Samuel to go and to tell the very priest whom he is serving in the temple that his sons are going to be destroyed because of their sin. And in Eli's wisdom, Eli basically says back to Samuel, if this is what the Lord says is best, then okay. And so Eli's, his influence and his role as a priest is profoundly compromised. And Samuel steps into this place where God begins to use him powerfully in the lives of the Israelites. He is the one who leads and directs the Israelites back toward God. And so after Israel has had a horrific loss to the Philistine army, and the Philistines have not only harmed and taken all kinds of things away from the Israelites, they do something else that is almost inexcusable. They take the Ark of the Covenant. They take the place where God's presence dwells. And they take it with them into a pagan land. So the Israelites at this point are suffering greatly. God is allowing them to experience the consequences of their sin. 
So Samuel steps in to be the one who leads them back. And in this process, God says to Samuel, appoint a king for these people. And Samuel does not want to do this. He does not believe it's a good move. Why? Because Samuel remembers that they already have a king. But God says, I'm going to give him a human king. And so he sends him to Saul. Now, you probably, a lot of you have learned about Saul at earlier points in time, and you certainly read about him um, as you were studying for this week. Saul is a man who is, um, he is appealing to others around him. He's tall, he's strong, he's a warrior. There's a couple things that are wrong with Saul, however. Saul is from the tribe of Benjamin. What's the problem there? It's not Judah. He is not from the line that God has said, my son will ultimately come. He is not from the Davidic line that will bring the Messiah. And the other problem is, is that Saul never really has a heart for God. He rejects God. So as he disobeys God, basically the Lord becomes fed up with Saul and he appoints David to be king. But then a long period of time passes before David can actually assume that role because Saul still continues to view himself in that way. He's out chasing David around the countryside, trying to kill him. And when Saul dies, his own son is appointed king for a short two-year period of time. So there's a lot that's going on here at this point in time. And David is waiting, and he's living out in caves with a band of men who have agreed to protect him. And finally, the time begins to come when he will reign as king. But I want to be sure you notice one other thing when Samuel goes to find David and to anoint him as king. When God says, Saul is no longer king, I want you to go to Bethlehem, the city of David. Where else in scripture do we hear that phrase about Bethlehem? Jesus' birth. Somebody said something else. Micah 5.2. Yes. So he's going to Bethlehem. Why is he going to Bethlehem? Because God is saying, no more from the tribe of Benjamin. I am now sending you to the genealogical line that will begin the kingdom from which I will produce my son. And in doing that, he sends Samuel back to Jesse, and Jesse is within the line of Judah. So all of these prophecies, all of these promises that God has made about the way that his son will come, about the lines through which he will be delivered, God is fulfilling every one of these truths. So before we get into some detail about David, I'd love for you to go to our second table discussion and answer these two things. Now these questions are actually questions that were in your lesson for preparation this week. 
So hopefully some of this um, you've already got. Tammy, can you pass out the, that large paper? Tammy's going to bring each of you a large um, poster board size piece of paper. And if you will think through and look back at your answers, if you did the pre-work, of how it is that King Saul was a projection of the people, but David is a silhouette of the Savior. And put two columns down this page and think through as a team and a group at your table, how is it that those two things are true? Create the contrast so that you can see it right in front of you. And then secondly, answer the question, why did God allow so much time to pass? between the day that David was selected out of all of Jesse's sons, why did he allow so much time to pass between that moment and the moment that he would actually be enabled to serve as king? So let's take about 10 or 12 minutes. Well done, groups. Okay, so what we want to do now is um, we want to talk about after David is anointed king and after he actually begins to rule as king, I want us to look at some specific things about David because David is a pivotal finger, figure in God's redemptive plan for the nation of Israel and for all of us as believers. And so David is an important person for us to understand his character the way he functioned, the way he thought that led God to put him into the position that he was in. So when David first took over as king, one of the things that he did that is significant is he made some very important moves. First of all, he moved his throne and the place that he would rule from, he moved it back to Jerusalem, which the Israelites considered as the city where God should dwell. <clears throat> Secondly, he did another really, really important thing, and that is that he brought the ark back to Jerusalem. He made sure that the Philistines no longer had possession of the ark. So God's presence where God dwells has now been returned to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem has become the holy city. For the Jews. This is highly significant. Now, the next thing that we want to talk about about David is that he is a foreshadowing of Jesus. And I don't want us to, to skip over this. I want us to land here for a minute and especially think this through. There are several ways things about David, um, things about his character, his faith, the way he lived and ruled that show us exactly why he is a foreshadowing of Jesus and why God favored him the way that he did. The first one is that David realized and recognized that God's plan for him to be king was not just God's favor on him, but it was God's plan and favor for the nation of Israel. In 2 Samuel 7.19, it says, And now, Sovereign Lord, in addition to everything else, this is David talking, you speak of giving your servant 
a lasting dynasty. Do you deal with everyone this way, O sovereign Lord? As David responds and says those words back to God, he's almost, um, it's almost unbelievable to him that God is showing him the favor and giving him the opportunity that he has put in front of him. David consistently gives God credit for, let me go, get down here. Wait, where am I here? Okay. He consistently gives God credit for everything that is happening at this point in the future of Israel. In 2 Samuel 7.22, he says, How great are you, O sovereign Lord. There is no one like you. We have never seen another God like you. Because what God is doing at this moment in time is he is restoring them as a people. And David is saying back to the Lord, we have never seen this happen in any other way. Thirdly, as David fights battles, he fights the ones that are of God's choosing. We re- you referenced this a moment ago in some of your comments about Saul and David. David doesn't just go out and say, I need to conquer whomever. David asks the Lord. In 2 Samuel 5, 18 and 19, the Philistines arrived and spread out across the valley of Rephim. So David asked the Lord, should I go out to fight the Philistines? Will you hand them over to me? And he waits for the answer before he takes any action. And after the battle is won, David is always quick to give God the credit for the victory. Not his prowess as a leader, not the military might of Israel. He is always fully recognizing that it is God who has given them the victory. David believes in obedience that the words of God are true. In 2 Samuel 7, 28, David says this, For you, O God, are sovereign Lord. Your words are true, and you have promised these good things to your servant. And finally, he never stops praising God, even when he gets himself into some pretty sticky situations. 1 Chronicles 29, 10 to 13, David says this, O Lord, the God of our ancestor Israel, may you be praised forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, and the majesty. Everything in the heavens and on earth is yours, O Lord, and this is your kingdom. We adore you as the one who is over all things. Wealth and honor come from you alone, for you rule over everything. Power and might are in your hand, and at your discretion people are made great and given strength. David has a faith and a confidence and a recognition of who God is and how it is God's sovereignty that is claiming all of the activity the circumstances, everything that is going on for Israel. David takes no credit for himself. He is a man who has grown close to the Lord, 
probably in those years that God had him being tested and growing. And he sees God differently than any ruler so far, any judge, or certainly than Saul did as he led the nation. Now, David was not perfect. We all know some stories about David. David sinned. You know, the beautiful Bathsheba is bathing on the roof, and David is tempted, and he invites her over, and then he has her husband sent to the front line in battle. David experiences some dire consequences for this. But the other thing to notice about David in that moment, as well as others, is that when he is confronted with his sin, he is quick to repent and to ask for God's forgiveness. And we are reminded as we see that happening in David's life, as well as everything that we see happening for Israel right now, that God's grace is extended to this people and this king in spite of their sins and their failure. You see, and the reason for that is this, God's plan never depends on the success of men and women. It doesn't depend on any given individual living a perfect life. It depends on God using those that he chooses as his instruments to put into place the redemptive history that brings us Jesus Christ. Now, <clears throat> this is why in Acts 13 we read this scripture. And if you don't know this scripture already in reference to David, jot this down and go back and read this over because this kind of sums everything up. But God removed Saul and replaced him with David, a man about whom God said, this is not a human opinion, this is God's opinion. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, he will do everything I want him to do. Imagine God saying that about you, that he had that level of confidence in your faithfulness and in your willingness to carry out his plan and to recognize in the midst of all of it who's really in charge. David is a pivotal figure. Now, the next thing that we want to be sure that we notice this week Oops, is the covenant that God makes with David. Because as you've been going through this redemptive story in the Old Testament, you have seen multiple covenants. You've seen a covenant with Abraham. You've seen a covenant with Noah. You've seen a covenant with Moses. And now you come to a covenant with David. When God makes a covenant... When God enters into a commitment and an agreement with his people, once again, remember, that covenant does not depend on those human beings. That covenant is solely dependent and solely undergirded with the commitment and the promises of God. So here's what he says to um, David. He says, furthermore, the Lord declares he will make a house for you, a dynasty of kings. He gives David an everlasting throne. 
He promises him an everlasting kingdom. Your house and your kingdom will continue before me for all time. All time. And your throne will be secure. He promises him a relationship where he is a son of God. And God says this, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. He tells him that his son will build the temple. Now, when he says this to David at this moment in time, David probably does not fully understand and grasp the meaning of this. But he says in um, 7, 12 to 13, once again in 2 Samuel, for when you die and are buried with your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants, your own offspring, and I will make his kingdom strong. He is the one who will build a house, a temple for my name, and will secure his royal throne forever. Later in David's life, there is nothing that he wants more than to build the temple for God. It is the passion and the cry of his heart. But God comes back to him and says, it isn't you. You're not the one. Your son will build my temple. So David does the best that he can do at this moment in time. He starts to raise the money, both through from his own personal wealth and by soliciting gifts from others, and he begins to purchase and accumulate the supplies that will be needed to build this temple. But he will never see it built. It will be through Solomon that the temple will come. And finally... <clears throat> the covenant says that it cannot be broken. In 2 Samuel 7:16, it says, Your house and your kingdom will continue before me for all time, and your throne will be secure forever. So you see, even though David has sin in his life, even though he has Uriah essentially murdered, he commits adultery with Bathsheba, and other problems exist in his life. This covenant that God makes with David does not change. And this covenant is central to our understanding of kingship throughout Scripture. Because this is the moment at which God says, You are the king through whom I will bring the generations that will ultimately lead to my son, Jesus Christ. The passage um, that you read for this week in 2 Samuel, the seventh chapter, if you need to, go back and read it again. It is key to understanding what God is saying to David and how David is responding, both to what God intends for him to do as well as the covenant that he is making with him. David is a picture for us of a king who seeks the Lord, who obeys the Lord, and who wants the best for God's people. He is not seeking his own interests. He judges fairly. God is forming from David and the generations that follow him the very lineage that brings to you and me in the first chapter of Matthew and Luke, and in the Gospels, 
this beautiful story that we have of Jesus arriving on earth as the God-man who will not sin, but who will be here to experience and understand all the pressures and the sufferings that we will experience as humans. And then, although he goes through all of that, he will be the Redeemer who forgives our sins, loves us in spite of our inadequacies, and then ultimately, after crucifixion and resurrection, claims the throne at the right hand of God. So let's go to table discussion three and answer these things. How does this deeper look into David's kingship expand your understanding of God's overall plan for the redemption of men and women? And then second, within this week's scripture texts and reading, this is really a good one to just spend a few minutes thinking about. We saw the entering and departing of God's spirit in people during this time of the judges and of the kings. It says from time to time in scripture that the Lord's spirit was in that person. How do you understand that in comparison with how the Holy Spirit indwells us as believers? So, yarn on those two things for a few minutes, and then we'll come back together. Okay, so as we wrap up here tonight, we're going to try to be finished at um, 8 o'clock on these evenings instead of 8.15. So as we finish up, um, go back with me for just a minute to the lights on the runway. And I hope that what you see and can use that visual for at this moment is that after having discussed it tonight, heard this teaching, and having read these, this chapter about the role that David played that was so pivotal in the redemptive history that you feel like a little more of that pathway is clear in front of you, that you feel like you see what God intended as he chose David and as he chose not just David but the kind of person that David was to be the kingly line through which the Messiah would come. Now, if you have your journals with you tonight, um, I know some of you do and some of you don't, but um, if you do, I'd like for you to write this down. If you don't, jot it down, and then you can um, work on this just a little bit on your own. But I'd love for you to just make a few notes in your journal, and, and all of you who just commented on how you better understand the role of David's kingship in God's plan. Make some notes on the concept of grace in Scripture and how you would explain that to somebody who's either very religious and doesn't understand grace or somebody who just has no perspective on this story at all. Sometimes I know for me, when I think about having to share things like that with an individual, or being able to explain what I've learned about Scripture, it is tremendously helpful to me if I sit down for a few minutes and just write some thoughts down. And then I've kind of thought it through in advance. 
so that if that opportunity presents itself, I'm not trying to think of it off the cuff. I've already processed some of that through my mind. So you can take a few moments now to do that, or you can do that later at home. But um, that's your challenge for this week. And then we're just going to close with Ephesians 2.8, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Okay. Um, Before um, we dismiss tonight, I do want to um, introduce to you um, Neil, who will be the teacher next week. Neil, can you just stand up so everybody can see you? This is Neil Anderson. And um, he is going to be teaching um, some of the weeks in this session, so you will see him from time to time, and then the other teacher who will be back this session is Barry Giller. So the three of us will be here with you. We are very much looking forward to that. And so for next week, um, do your pre-work so that you're ready and raring to go and so that your understanding only grows as you come back for teaching and discussion. So let me... um, Pray for us as we finish up tonight, and then all of this will be yours to take with you. Lord, we are um, <clears throat> we're humbled tonight when we think of your sovereignty and the way, Lord, that um, your plan has been in place since the moment of creation. Lord, we thank you that you are, in fact, in charge of all things. Lord, we, um, we thank you for the example that David is to us. Will you, Father, bless each of us with hearts like David's that recognize you as sovereign and in charge of all things, that give you credit for the way that you are the one that controls all. And Father, will you give us hearts that love you and constantly want to worship and praise you. Father, we confess to you that we are weak and we're sinful. We ask for your forgiveness in that, but we thank you profusely for the grace that comes into our lives that is not because of anything that we have done, but only because of the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. So, Father, we pray all of this tonight in his powerful and mighty name. Amen.